of course, the newspapers being the main way of communicating widely, people would bring things into the newspaper offices all the time. And sometimes gifts, and so they would thank whoever gave it thanks for the brandy or whatever. Uh, but sometimes odd objects like, you know, large pieces of vegetables or two-headed calves or, you know, I, I can't remember specific, but, you know, really unusual stuff. And it often found its way to the newspaper office so they would write a story about it. News commentary, technology, preparedness, and pop culture. From Nashville, Tennessee, the home of hot, hot chicken. I'm Jess, the straight Christian conservative one. And I'm Chris, a gay Buddhist libertarian. We will explore today's issues with opposing viewpoints. And feature guests with incredible or unique stories. We may see things differently. But in the end, this is... Still still love love you, bro. Well, happy week. Yeah, happy week. Very happy week. I know. I've I've been really busy, so I, I don't know about how happy it is. Well, I think I think you've had a little bit of extra energy lately, so I really have you've been able to expel all of that on many many different tasks. It's been horrible. I've I've been so productive lately. It has been insane. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I've slept, but you, I, you know, it's bad when when you're actually you say it's terrible. I've been so productive lately. It's <laughs> oh, it's insane! And I because I found my list of stuff to do, and oh. I've just been going through it. The studio has new carpet and. I've been doing all my projects in the garage, and it's it's insane. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then we had a, a skunk incident, and I'm not going to go into it for our listeners, but we have um, living under the studio uh, is, a, is a family, was, uh, well, is a family of skunks. Uh, they're missing one now. Uh, I've been on a mission to— <laughs> They're all um, marked for death. <laughs> they are. Uh, they cannot continue to live under there because they keep spraying my dog— and um and it's really it's really disturbing when you let her in you're ready to go to bed and and that that raw skunk smell just fills the house. And so, Lucy is so friendly. She just wants to say hi, you know. She does. She wants to go and sniff the sniff the She thinks and, they're cats yeah. and they're and it's just, it's a horrible smell. They cannot continue living around my yard. They can't keep spraying my dog. So I'm on a mission to dispatch these skunks to skunk heaven and and I have found the perfect tools. There is a, and this fascinated me. I've been doing research. I'm pretty much a skunk expert now, but they make this trap. It's an anti-spray trap. If, if you have a skunk problem, go and look up an anti-spray trap, but it's a tube and it's, it's kind of small and it has a, a trap door on one end. But once the skunk goes inside, because the skunk can't spray unless they can see you, right? So if you've ever seen a skunk, they have to point their butt at you. And they have to look over their shoulder. Then this is complicated. I don't, you know, it's amazing that they do this, but they have to point their butt at you and they look back over their shoulder because they aim mm-hmm. and they can hit you up to 12 or 13 feet accurately. Wow. Unless it's a baby skunk and then they just spray. So in this tube trap, they can't turn around and see you. So they can't spray if they can't see. So once you get a skunk in a tube, he can't spray you. The problem is once you have a skunk, in a tube, even though he can't spray. <laughs> what do you do with the skunk in a tube? What do you do with the skunk? Right. Now, I'm not going to continue this story for our listeners, but I've just been on a mission trying to eradicate uh, the skunks from here. And let's just say Chris one, skunks minus one. But anyway. What? Wait, wait, skunk minus one? Yes. That family of three is now family of two. Oh, okay. You, you started with the point system and then you went to some sort of like... Subtract. I don't even know how that. You know works what? I don't. Yeah, you can't just. Don't worry how I count. I well, just have to count how. I at count. least from all this, we have learned that 
you can be as annoying as a skunk in a tube. That can be a new saying there. Yes. As annoying as a skunk in a tube. Useless as a skunk in a tube. I don't know. There you go. Skunk in a tube. I want to say it a lot. I like that. Useless as a skunk in a tube. Yeah. You heard it here. <laughs> what about you? What are you eradicating? Oh, my goodness. Uh, hopefully, um, gosh, hopefully uh, no longer going to be living in, in an apartment very soon. Um, getting close to closing on my first home. Very, do you need any uh, lawn pets? Lawn. I hope you're not talking about uh, tubid skunks because I do not oh. do not require any tubid skunks in okay. my neighborhood. I tried. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> however, that is going well, um, and uh, I cannot wait to move out of an apartment. I mean, I could probably talk all day about the different stories I have from the neighbors, and I almost got attacked by a neighbor's dog um, the other day. Jeez. Uh, he they have these like bull terrier things or whatever. They're like really skinny and they have the face of a I guess well the face of a bull terrier. Um but they're 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 skinny and they're kind of aggressive and they always like try to lunge at me whenever I walk by them outside. Unfortunately, that's the door that's directly next to mine at the apartment. So I was coming home from work one day and as I'm unlocking my door, open here opens their door. And I guess this guy really didn't have a good hold of it because this dog just immediately darts close as close as he can to me and starts nipping at my pants. Oh, and no. and the dude's just like on the phone. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. He does that. <laughs> and I'm like, man, <laughs> I, if I was not like so shocked by that, it would have uh, yeah. probably not been um, very good for anybody. So a bull terrier, isn't that the like flat nose dog? Yeah, yeah. It's like a, like a pug. Sort of. That's what I'm trying to compare it to. It looks... It looks kind of like a pug slash pit bull to me, but um, but it's got those long like cheeks. Okay, and I'm talking about kind of yeah. like a um, like a droopy like cheek dog. dog. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. But but they're but they're squished face. I don't know. Maybe wow. I'm saying it's the wrong breed, but that's what popped into my head. I hope I our listeners it. like how we have to describe things to each other to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, like that's the just, droopy cheek dog. That yeah. literally is how we live our everyday that's life. It. So you know. Well, we have really good news. We got a lot of feedback. Uh, we're going to do another uh, full guest episode, and uh, we've brought back another popular guest. We had a lot of comments when we had Alan with the Nashville Retrospect on, and uh, we have begged and pleaded him to come back, and he has so graciously done that, and mm-hmm. he's with us here tonight. Alan, how are you? Hi. Thanks for having me back. And uh, first of all, Jess, congratulations on the new Thank house. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, Thank you. And both of you, congratulations on the new carpet. In the, in the studio, <laughs> Thank it you. looks great, and it doesn't smell like skunk in here, does it? No, no not at all. Can't tell. Free trap. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So that's well, awesome. Uh, Alan, once again, we're really happy to have you here. Um, I know we kind of just gave you an open prompt, like uh, come here, bring bring us something. You know the format of the show, so really just want to let you loose and. Uh, see what you have. Well, uh, thank you. And I, I know I left you guys with a bunch of papers. So if you, if there's anything there you saw that you wanted to uh, talk about from the last uh, discussion we had, feel free to ask. I may not be able to answer the questions, but I'll try. You know, let me say this. We joked on the last episode that I have a problem where when I start consuming, I can't stop. And, and no joke, when Alan left, I, I brought the papers that he left uh, into the house and I was up all night and I read every single one of them. And then I followed some of the stories and listen to his podcast. And it's absolutely great stuff. If you haven't checked out uh, their Facebook and their website, do it now. And I've just realized that he's brought like six or seven papers here. So I'm going to be up all night tonight. Yeah, again, yeah so I thanks. probably shouldn't have done that. But. <laughs> um, there is one thing that, that I actually want to read. It's a really cool article um, from the August 2010 retrospect. 
uh, this this just really jumped out at me really quick from 1842 from the Republican banner. We have just examined a gun, the invention of Dr. Thompson of Smith County, Tennessee, which may be fired 50 times in less than 50 seconds and with much precision. There are but four barrels, but 50 breech pieces, all loaded and successively applied to the barrels by the revolutions of a cylinder turned by the hand. The improvement is intended to apply alone to field pieces in the emergency of war, it not being suited for small arms. It may be made to repeat 500 times if necessary in so many seconds, and is therefore in this respect superior to any other gun invented. The maker will exhibit it again on Saturday next in this city." What a cool time in the 1800s, like you're announcing an invention of a gun in a paper. That's pretty slick. Yeah, and and that it uh, fires, what, 50 rounds in, in 50, 50 seconds. seconds. Wow. Yeah. Now, that was efficient back then. That's very, firepower. Very efficient. That is, that is very I mean, that's like SWAT team of 1800s, you know? Oh, yeah. Now, I have to wonder, was that like uh, Joseph Gatling? Was that who was doing it? or? No, I think that's that's someone local. Well, you know, there is the Thompson uh-huh. submachine gun, but I don't think that's what that is. Uh, uh, so. In uh, Smith uh, County. Interesting. Yeah. I know that we've had several interesting firearms come from Tennessee, but I didn't. I don't know. Yeah, Barrett Barrett Firearms yep. is in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. What's cool is though is what I take this is that I don't know if he took it to the paper and, and it doesn't say he invented it, but they inspected this gun. So you know, this there's this guy that perhaps invented it or has it, took it to the paper and they inspected it and then printed an article. I mean, you know, no, what is yeah, the, that was that was very common. I mean, the of course the newspapers being the main way of communicating widely, people would bring things into the newspaper offices all the time and Hmm. sometimes gifts. And so they would thank whoever gave it thanks for the brandy or whatever. Uh, But sometimes odd objects like, you know, large pieces of vegetables or two headed calves or, you know, I I can't remember specific, but, you know, really unusual stuff. And it often found its way to the newspaper office. So they would write a story about it. You, you went to them. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of Facebook. That's what I was about to say. That was a Facebook post in 1842. Like, come look at this. This is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, there's some interesting similarities, you know, you can be anonymous uh, with the internet. And back then you could uh, submit a letter and it could be signed by it with some clever pseudonym, uh, like citizen, you know, something or other. Mm-hmm. But the newspaper editor had to know who you were. So it was not anonymous to who published it, but it was anonymous to everyone who read it. Right. So they would get letters. I, I read uh, an editorial one time where someone, the editor was complaining cause, because people were sending, uh, somebody in particular was sending him letters complained about something, but they were not signed. And they said, we do not publish anonymous huh, right. letters. We're just not going to do it. Yeah. But if they knew you, then they might. Then they might. That's interesting. It. That's kind of like, um, well, I mean, if you think about it, you want to go onto Facebook or something and, and uh, share, I don't know, like uh, have someone create a picture or whatever. Someone has to be the first distributor of that and say, hey, you know, this is, this is from someone else, but here's the picture or whatever. Yeah. And that's how it kind of goes viral. Yeah, and you know, different we, than the an, an anonymity of the internet for sure. Yeah, and you know, speaking of anonymity and privacy, is there's a lot of talk about that as far as relates to the internet. The, you know, there was in um, earlier time, in earlier history of Nashville, they would publish city directories, and these directories would not only list your name and your street address, but where you worked, your position you held, 
If you were uh, African American, it would be marked with a C for colored. Huh. And wow. it, and you could look it up in reverse from the street address. So it had a street uh, listing. So you could see who lived at what number. Then you wow. go to the other part of the directory and look that person up by name and find out everything you want to know about them. That's crazy. Um, and, That's and really strange. Were, and there was, you know, pretty regularly in the early uh, 1900s, they would, there was a hotel gossip column, and they would just list everyone who checked into a hotel in Nashville. And why, in some cases, why they were there, who they were visiting. <laughs> but wow. yeah, you, you, people were... That didn't last long. That's interesting. That. Yeah, we're very, very much in your hotel business. Hotel gossip. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of like the... Um, isn't there like some sort of newspaper that does a? Um, oh no no no! It's um, there's some Twitter page that that posts um, who got in jail um, in Lebanon or in. There's Wilson a lot County. of services out there yeah. that um, that post, and that's public information, yep. you know, yep. and that's that's easy to post, and um, yeah, and you know, there's there's two sides of that for sure, and there's a lot of that information out there publicly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's weird is, um, wow, a list of why you're checking into a hotel. Yeah, or at at least your name. But yeah, yeah. it was, and I'm sure like anything else, there were workarounds. So there were people who weren't reported or Mm -hmm. they knew how to get around it. They gave a fake name. Yeah. They knew the person at the desk or whatever. It's not like everybody was able to, it was under such scrutiny, they couldn't get away with things. But But look how times have changed. I mean, you can't just call a hotel now and be like, is is Bob Smith there? You know, let alone have a list. That's right. Privacy has become much more important, I think, to the general populace. Sure. Yep. Um, maybe because we're exposed more to the effects of spreading our information around, you know, there's more people that abuse it and use it. And I think there's more at stake. Yeah, not true. I mean, in the in the 1800s and early 1900s, there's there's less at stake. I think people were a little bit more um, tolerant. Of and information other. doesn't spread as fast as well. Yeah. So, yeah, and it was it was taken more seriously. I don't know about. I don't know exactly how it compares, but your your reputation was a big deal. So, you know, people had gunfights in the street over insults in the newspapers. You know, there were That was back when fighting words doctrine was the thing, right? Uh yeah. I mean, there were I, I happened to write an article about it in one of our early newspapers uh, about it uh, two editors that got into a fight, a gunfight basically across Cherry Street. Huh. And um so I looked it up. I was like, well, how common was this? Well, there were six incidents total that I could find where editors got editors, at least one editor, if not two, got in a fight with someone else over something that was published in the paper where they called him a liar or they said, you did something. And he says, I didn't do it. And, and this is well after dueling was illegal. Mm. I mean, it was illegal they in still the early it. 1800s, but they would still, to save face, you know, that's the way they were looking at it, is that you, if, if the insult was in the newspaper, and again, the main primary mm-hmm. means of communication, mm-hmm. then, you know, you had to get quote-unquote satisfaction and meet in the streets. And, uh, one, you know, one of the famous ones was a, a guy named Zollicoffer and uh, another guy named Marlin. And Zollicoffer uh, went on to be a, a Confederate general. Uh, Marling survived and ended up um, working for a uh, the administration. I can't remember the president who won, but the whole fight was over a presidential election. Hmm. Wow! Uh, and they were uh, arguing it through the newspaper back and forth. One would publish one thing, the other would publish something else. And at some point, uh, Marling said that you're basically lying, and mm-hmm. he says you can't say that to me. Fake and, news. 
Yeah. <laughs> that hasn't changed much these days, no, has it? No, it yeah. just, yeah. I guess we the always talk about changed. it. We always talk about how, like, um, you know, it's dangerous to to say certain things. People, you know, will, will insult you on social media or call your call your boss or something like that. But back then, they would literally come out and try to shoot you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit different, I guess. Yes, it, or stab you. One incident involves a uh, cane sword. It's like, uh, more about a power thing, too, because those people were really powerful. Uh, you talk about in the paper. Editors, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they really were. I mean, it, it's a, it was definitely a different, definitely a different time in that sense. I think some of the, the other things are similar, but uh, and it wasn't the only gunfight. I mean, there were other gunfights that mm-hmm. happened. You know, we talked about Carmack last week, and he's on the cover of uh, th- that particular issue that I brought you guys here. Um, similar thing happened with him, and he ended up uh, being shot by the son of the guy he was having a fight with, mm. but. Uh, and he sort of became a martyr, and that's why there was a statue of him downtown until until it was toppled uh, recently. Wow! Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's that's uh, that that was a real thing. There's just so much stuff in here to consume. It's insane. Like our, our listeners would hear like hours of silence, <laughs> but I'm looking at these headlines, and they're just so. I what, just uh, what'd you find? I just found in the corner here on um, this is the what would you call this? The Carmack issue. That's or, July 2020, I believe. Okay. So this is um, the stricken city, cholera epidemic, 1873, part two. Wow. So where did you get this title, the stricken city? Was that, that was the title the from title the that, original newspaper. Yeah. Wow. So that, that one came out in, uh, that series came out in the 50s. And um, I, I ran it in, I think, three or four parts. Uh, and it was a it was a history of of that epidemic, which we talked a little bit about last time, but it was Nashville's worst. Uh, and I forget the total ended up being around six or 700 people died during, during that pandemic or epidemic, I mm. guess is more accurate. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of, lots of interesting stories came out of that and lots of changes came out of it for Nashville's, uh, Nashville's infrastructure, water, sewage. Right. A lot of the things we have now, uh, systems we have now came from that pandemic, that epidemic. So last time you told our listeners about a really cool story on Christmas Day uh, with a, a baby, and and I followed that through, and I hope our listeners did. And if you didn't, you need to go and um, and and follow that story. Is there anything else that's because um, uh, I think that was probably your most memorable? Is there anything else that's uh, as striking or uh, you know something that has um, a lot of information like that that we can go and track down that you recall. Well, there's uh, another. Well, that one you asked me is one of my favorite or more interesting. And an, another one, and I mentioned then that it wasn't very historical story, but another one that I really um, enjoy is historical, and it, it it happened to take place during the Civil War. Um, there was a man who lived in Nashville who was from uh, New England and was a boat captain. And uh, he sailed around the world with this huge American flag on his ship. And when he retired, he chose to retire in Nashville. And when he did, he brought that flag with him. And this flag would be put on display for the 4th of July or for whatever occasions there were. He, he would fly this flag. Well, as we got closer and closer to the Civil War, things were getting contentious in Nashville. There were people who were pro-union. There were people who were well, pro, well, pro-slavery in a way, and then uh, people who were pro, um, pro-union, pro keeping the union together. And um, things got very, very contentious. And he had two sons who w- were pro-Confederacy, and he was not. He was 
union. And so he got worried about what might happen to the flag. So he had, the, the legend has it, is the way it's written in an article from that time period, is that it was sewn into a comfort, which presumably means it was put into a blanket of some sort, mm. hidden there. Mm. Well, he um, kept it there. His sons went off to war to fight for the Confederacy. He stayed in Nashville. Um, and then in February 1862, the, the uh, federal forces arrive, and uh, uh, there's a great panic. Uh, a lot of the citizens leave. The Confederates uh, retreat and burn bridges and ships that are uh, are in the uh, um, river. Try to slow their advance. Yes, yeah, to, yeah, to uh, tactically they do this. Right. Um, and uh, one of the there are other interesting stories about that day, but the the one that relates to this is that Captain Driver, when that happened, cut the flag out of the uh, comfort, brought it down to the forces that had taken over the capital, and they took down the flag that was up there, which was uh, uh, belonged to uh, the, the first uh, Union troops to arrive, and they put up his flag. And supposedly he stayed there overnight to protect it, to make sure that it hmm. was okay. But um, this flag is now in the Smithsonian. And the reason it's in the Smithsonian is because he had named it Old Glory. So that that name for the American flag, Old Glory, comes from Nashville. And it comes from that no particular way. Wow. flag. Wow. That's, That's crazy. I did not know any of the history behind it. Yeah, That's and amazing. so he's he is buried in City Cemetery and has, uh, which is down at 4th downtown, I highly recommend visiting it. It's, it's an amazing place um, because there are so many early Nashvillians there. In fact, the two men I just talked about, Zollicoffer and Marling, are buried in the same cemetery now. Hmm. And uh, Driver is there, and he has the most elaborate tombstone you will probably ever see. It's like a tall tree stump, and it's got rope around it and an mm. anchor and all these other symbols oh, wow. and scrolls. And, wow. Yeah, he named uh, the American flag. That's pretty yeah, important. That's, yep. oh, wow, that's substantial. Wow. What a, I was not expecting that. No, that's I had crazy. no idea where that was going. Yeah, there, was there are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, Nashville has a lot of stories and other cities may have them too, but Nashville has its own and we have some pretty good ones. I think Nashville has a really um, cultural root. Like a, a lot of things that come from Nashville are they have very interesting and, and almost, I don't know, emotional stories behind them, you know? And to hear that Nashville, someone from Nashville, defined old glory, like it created that moniker that we all use every single, well, not every day, but you know what I mean. We all know it in our hearts. Um, that's just, that's amazing. Makes me proud to be, you know, from that area. Yeah. And I would like to see the flag. You know, it's. I don't think they display it all the time, but it's in the Smithsonian. If you Google it, you can see what, it, how it looks, and how, what's what survived of it. It was, it was pretty beat up, but it was survived. It's wow. amazing that they can keep something like that though preserved for so long. It's a very, very complex science, from what I hear. And speaking of of period flags, are you familiar with the Bonnie Blue? Uh, familiar with the name, but I can't recall the flag at, at the moment. So it looks like... Well, it's um, blue. No, <laughs> yeah, it's got a picture of Bonnie on it. It, yeah. um, it looks like the Dallas Cowboys flag. Um, yeah, yeah. It's blue. I think that's... It's got I think a it's single back, star, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's a blue background with a white star or white background with a... It's blue background with a white star. Um, anyway, I've always been fascinated by this because I've heard plenty of stories about it. And, and it's supposedly a, a flag of, of some part of the Confederacy... And um, and I've known a lot of people that have flown it. 
just it's kind of like the Confederate flag, um, but it was like you know just a portion, kind of like a battle flag from one of the battles. And then I started reading that people had either back in the period or more recently, it's turned into. Um, and I've seen references to like it's KKK and there's racist around it. And I, and but there's so much written on the internet, obviously. So I, I didn't know if you had any history or no. Unfortunately, about it. I don't. Yeah, it, it's funny because I. I used to be more general in my reading of history, but you know, for the last 12, 15 years, it's been all natural <laughs> history. Yeah. But for, you know, like I said, sometimes it does cross over. I mean, you know, the, the women's suffrage vote was a Nash is a national story that happened here in Nashville. Um, there, there's, um, there are other stories like that. Not just old glory that, that, um, cross over to national news. Yeah. I think from what I understand about the Bonnie blue is, you know, like you said, modern connotations are different just because of, you know, the people that decide to fly them. But um, I, I just think it goes back to the whole um, symbols change, you know, over time. Yeah. Uh, modern day, I mean, the KKK, what? They fly Confederate flags. They fly different Confederate flags. They fly the Bonnie Blue. They fly the American flag. You know, it's every everything that they can attach to. They fly the Nazi flag. The imagery, <laughs> so, and that's been really confusing you know. because there's there's Buddhist imagery which looks very much like the swastika, except yeah, it's backwards. Yeah. And um, and I used to have a flag that was a Buddhist flag, but it was obviously backwards. And, you know, it's, I don't Yeah, because it's like, it. instead of being shifted, it's straight up and instead down, Instead of right? like clockwise, it, right. it's going uh -huh. counterclockwise. But the Bonnie Blue, it's interesting. I A long time ago, somebody gave me like a desk flag with the Bonnie Blue. And I thought, well, this is, this is cool. And I was trying to learn the history of it. And, they, you know, I just thought it was like a Southern thing. And then one day... Somebody saw that and they were like, oh, are you in the, you know, what? And I'm like, am I in the what? <laughs> and they're like, you know. And oh I'm like, no, gosh. I don't know. And then I, that's when I, you know, they made reference really? to that. And I'm like, what? So I took that out real quick. But I, that's when I started doing that's that crazy. research. And yeah, so I don't know. I'm confused about the Bonnie Blue. I don't know. And I if any of our listeners know anything about the history, shoot us emails and, and give us your opinions and let us know what I you know, think. I know someone who could probably give us some history lessons on those flags. So I think um, maybe we should... I want to know, on, yeah. like, do I keep it in storage or do I bring it out? <laughs> I do believe the Bonnie Blue is, it was something before the Confederacy. I believe it, it was an American flag or a naval flag or something like that. I don't believe it is related directly to the Confederacy, but sure. perhaps it, like like I said before, the meanings have changed, um, just like the meanings of words. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can, you know, paint a, a, a flag or I can take any kind of image and, you know, run through the streets and scream any message. And if I've got that flag, then all of a sudden it's associated to it, unfortunately. So yeah, unfortunately. It's a tough one. And Alan, and more recently uh, in Nashville, there was another big news topic we're not far from. And, and that was a bombing. And I understand that you have another story that ties into that. Yeah, there are, uh, when, when that happened, that, that, uh, Christmas morning, um, it some things occurred to me that uh, were similar to it. Now, nothing exactly like it, but there had been a Christmas Day disaster before in Nashville's history. There had been a vehicular bomb in Nashville's history, and there had uh, been a very massive explosion that damaged a lot of downtown. Mm. So uh, they were all separate events, but uh, but they were similar. Um, the the earliest one, um, and the one that did the most damage, happened in October of 1847, and the Capitol building was under construction, and nearby was a powder magazine, is what they called it, and it was basically a, a brick 
building where they kept gunpowder. And mm-hmm. of course they were using it to blast because that hill is limestone like most of Middle Tennessee. And uh, there was a lightning storm. Ooh. Now, there coincidentally... and does the, not go together. No, no. <laughs> coincidentally, in the newspapers days leading up to that, there was also an arsonist in town, which they, they, they referred to as a incendiary. That's what they would call arsonist. An incendiary. Ooh, I like that. I uh, like that too. I really, um, that's cool. Watch out for the incendiary in town. <laughs> so when I was uh, researching this, I thought, well, it's got to be that guy. There's no way this was lightning. But there were uh, multiple accounts that said lightning from the storm struck the powder magazine and it blew up and it sent brick missiles through just throughout the entire city. Uh, One editor who wrote about it was knocked out of his chair. Uh, There was a report that um, almost every pane of glass was broken in the city, some two miles away. That's expensive, especially especially back in the 1800s. You know, and I I just happened when you read that, I'm holding the paper that that article is in, and I want to read one line because I find it it fascinating the way they reported at that time. Um, In view of the awful destruction which surrounded them, we also saw a horse and a cow lying near by the place, killed outright. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So just... I mean, the reporting is just, it's so raw and like mm-hmm. down right to the point. That's thats crazy. And like I said before, with these articles, they're written because they did not have a lot of words to use. They didn't have as much space. You know, we can write at, at infinite end on a website, theoretically, and it just continuously grow. Sure. But on this paper, every word matters. And it was, as I said before, on the last episode we had Alan, it's an art how they phrase sentences, how they put words to paper and make it a attractive, you know, attention-getting title. Yeah, not not a lot of room for fluff. No. And you said there were two similar. Yeah, three bombings. actually. Three. Uh, well, they weren't. Those weren't. Well, the other. I'm sorry. Yeah, there was one other bomb, um, and that was in the 70s. There was a. Um, and I can't remember the exact date. I thought I had a piece of paper that I brought that on. Can't find it. Um, but this, uh, there was a, a person who uh, worked for the Metro uh, Police at the time who was a bomb tech. And uh, his name was Buford Toon. So he contacted me. I and know that name. Told me about. From where? Uh, told me well, about. He, he, I think he's, he, I don't know if he still does, but he used to do private uh, security work and things like that. He teaches like handgun carry classes and things of that nature. Yep. Yeah. Okay. He was a bomb tech at this time and uh, happened downtown. There was a roofer working on a nightclub that was on Broadway, roughly where Fifth and Broad Complex is today. It was called uh, the Cassock Cat 2. Um, and uh, the he looked down, saw a car that I think was in the way of possibly, you know, things falling on it. So mm-hmm. he went down to look at it and find the owner and there was this what looked like a huge bomb in this thing. So uh, he contacted police. They came out and determined it was a 300-pound bomb on a timer. And uh, this guy, Toon, and another officer got in there and stopped, managed to stop it. Uh, And he he told the story, and uh, it's in one of the papers I brought you guys, of how they did that. And uh, they said it would have... It would have easily destroyed the block. Like oh, yeah. there's, you know, the tower of the First Baptist Church there on Broadway. They that would have surely been blown. I mean, it would have been really, wow. really, really bad. What kind of explosive was it? Do we know? I think it was dynamite. Three hundred pounds of dynamite. Wow. 
Yeah, that's a pretty. I mean, the, just the the short blast radius of that is a lot of pressure, and that's a that's a high explosive. It's not like yeah. gunpowder; it doesn't burn slow. You know, that's a extremely intense pressure wave. Yeah, that's and apparently insane. it was all over uh, turf war between club owners or something is, wow. is what it was connected wow. to. But did they find the guy who did it? Uh, not that I know of. I don't recall that ever being solved. Ah. But uh, anyway, the other one was uh, as Christmas Day disaster in uh, 1961, the Maxwell House Hotel burned down. Now, this was a huge old institution. So they started constructing it before the Civil War. During the Civil War, it served as a as a barracks, as a hospital. Um, Confederate prisoners were kept there for a while. In fact, a stairway collapsed and injured a bunch of them, which hmm. became kind of a legendary story. Um, it was once it was completed in, in the eighteen seventies. The first elevator in Nashville was put in there, the first big one, and it it was so large it was like a small room, and uh, people would people by the thousands showed up just to ride the elevator. Huh. Wow. Um. Anyway, it's it became a very popular uh, destination place for young people, ballroom dancing. It was just a, the center of Nashville for a long time, but mm-hmm. it burned in, in 1961, killed one person. Uh, but a lot of people still remember that. That's not hopefully too long ago because I'm not, that's only a little older than I am. <laughs> it's funny you said Maxwell House. When we first, when I was ready to, we were getting this podcast ready, I was wanting to add a little, like a bunch of Nashville facts into the intro, mm-hmm. which is we I stuck on hot chicken because I love hot chicken, but one of <laughs> them was flowing. um that the Maxwell House Hotel is where Theodore Roosevelt coined the phrase good to the last drop because he had his first cup of local coffee there. And as soon as you said Maxwell House, I thought I remembered I went back and looked at my notes from when we started the podcast and found that factoid. Like what? that was at the Maxwell House Hotel. Yeah, was, and we as far as I know, that's still considered legend. Like there's no document that he said it. Now, really? It, it, yeah, I mean, but I don't know that there would be. But right. well, but it's on four web pages. So that's it has right. to that's be true. true. Right. It does sound like something Teddy Roosevelt would say. He was he was a pretty legendary guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well they uh, you know, even if he alluded it, I'm sure they jumped on it and said, "Hey, he said good to the yeah, last drop." Yeah, brand right there. Yeah, and I it's, mean, it, it served them well. It's, <laughs> they still use it today. So. so, and what I'm getting to, I mean, there's a lot of Christmas issues in Nashville, like the you know that bomb, the Christmas Day bombing recently, this this baby thing. Like, what's going oh, yeah, on? Christmas in Nashville. I, you know, that's a good question. I hadn't made those connections. I mean, there's some positive stories too, like the nativity scene that used to be at the uh, Centennial Park was a huge, huge attraction for many, many years, but uh, it deteriorated to the point that they took it out. But I've given talks and to groups of people, and uh, when I show the slide of the nativity scene lit up. Uh, People, people would always react. You'd always get oohs and ahs from uh-huh. from the elderly people who remember it, and not that everybody who remembers it is elderly, right. but the, they in particular remembered <laughs> it. Uh, it's safe. But I did, I, <laughs> I did have one time that I, I gave the talk and was talking to audience members afterwards, and a, a elderly black gentleman talked to me about it, and he and he talked about how much he loved it, but he also said they had to view it from the car. Because Centennial Park was a whites-only park. Oh, no. Mm. Really? So he had wow. memories of it, but it was from the street. That's crazy. Yeah. So, like, there's a couple of good things in Nashville on Christmas, and then the rest bad. Like, mm-hmm. that's insane. The the, the Christmas Day no. bombing, like, I'll never forget. I was on vacation, and I don't want to talk a long time about this, but uh, I was actually on vacation coming back that day, and 
it was just a it was a really long disastrous day where mm. things got shut down but um you know nashville i'm I'm proud of nashville it it recovered quickly you know downtown i think there's a lot of still questions about what's going to happen but uh, a lot of cool stories have come through it the you know the bomber obviously is as uh, justice has been served um nobody died you know except the bomber so th- there's a positive side to it's it it's really what uh, what always interested me about that story was the fact that the guy he did not want to kill anybody right. that was his goal is just to destroy the building if you're going to have a bomber yeah. let it be a nice bomber you yeah. Know? I, yeah i like that if we have to have bombers i want more of that guy because yeah, yeah he caused you know a couple hundred million dollars in damage but he didn't kill anybody, yeah. but um, it's but it's a wonder he didn't. I mean, because yeah. so some people were very close. I'm yeah. pretty some officers sure officers could have gotten killed. I mean, it's it's amazing no one was killed. I'm pretty sure that he was watching those. You remember the body body cam of those officers? He had to have been watching those officers. Yeah, he was in the RV. Yep, and and as they turned the corner, boom. Blew up, I, and you know, I I think part of that, a lot of the system was automated, like the recorded voice. But mm-hmm. you know, it makes you wonder, like, what if he got there the day and like the recording wasn't working? You know, would he have stopped because he couldn't warn people? Well, he was he was parked there forever, so surely, I mean, well, just transporting yeah. it was dangerous. Yeah. I mean, there's there's been plenty of accidents happen with explosives, you know, in the middle of a city. So. I mean, it it could have had a lot of different endings. It's a wonder it had this one. I mean, it's yeah. and. Another interesting thing like that is like motive. You know, there's no real way to tell the motive of this. However, I have on good authority, I actually met somebody in in the work that I do who knew this guy. And, or at least he had a friend that knew this guy. And I don't know if you remember, but I think um, me and Alan were in, a, in, were in communication when this, when this happened. And I believe I said something along the lines of this has to be a 5G nut, right? Yeah, I remember. Um that is correct. Uh, this guy was one of those. Um, that was big. Like uh, during that time, everyone was afraid of five G. They were burning five G towers in Europe, and there's vandalism going on. That was why he did it. He truly believed that five G was, you know, responsible for causing cancer or spreading the coronavirus. I don't even know what specifically he believed, but he believed five G was a threat, and he was doing that to stop AT and T from or at least punish yeah. them for something. So. And he, he put a bomb, though, outside of a building that's designed to stop explosions. So, and, and I know everybody that has AT&T in this area knew that there was a disaster. It wasn't the bomb that shut down phone service. Mm-hmm. It was the bomb that shut down power, but the building had backup. So I, we could spend an hour yeah. talking about the problems, but the problem the problem with AT&T service in Nashville for days wasn't because of the bomb. It was because of the power getting to that building and some of the other things it did. So he, he kind of didn't succeed, but he kind of did. Well, and know, the whole, unfortunately. the whole thing with that is, I know we're going to get, we can get deep into this all day, but um, the whole thing with that is, is, you know, and you know this, Chris, but I'm just explaining this for the listeners. Um, they had battery backups. AT&T did. They had backup generators, but the emergency crews eventually had to say, no, we have to shut power down to this building because it's too dangerous. You had exposed wires. You've got, all kinds of other problems. You've going got water on in the basement water. where the batteries are. Exactly. So power has to be cut because people cannot work while there's live circuits. And the and other problem is the FBI didn't deem that a crime scene. Mm-hmm. You can't have you know somebody from AT and T be bopping around in a building trying to keep you know switches flipping right. while it's a crime scene. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of the issues. So. Um, yeah, but you know while we're on a technical discussion, Alan, you uh, you had a technical thing you wanted to talk to us yeah, about. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned um, 
Well, sometimes on some of your shows, I've, I've noticed you'll talk about sometimes you have technical difficulties, like with Jess's chair sometimes and other things. <laughs> we've, yes. we've had some tonight that you haven't mentioned. Oh, my gosh. Our listeners so, don't know yeah. that we've spent like an hour before the show tracking down a buzz. Running around like a chicken with my head yeah, cut off, diving under there. tables. And yeah, it's it's still there. It's anyway. more more tolerable. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's mostly just affecting us. So, right. Uh, so uh, you will never hear it. Well, Hopefully. the the it did happen to remind me of of uh, a story that's only indirectly connected to Nashville, but it it, it actually involves uh, interference Ooh. over circuits. Ooh, oh, I like this. Already. So, uh, you guys, I'm hoping you guys have some answers for me. Actually, this is of um, interest. The in in uh, uh, August of 1859, the local newspapers in Nashville started getting reports of people seeing bright lights in the skies. Um, and even then, they knew what they were. They were Aurora Borealis. Mm-hmm. But it was going much farther south than anybody had ever seen it, going I know what this is now. really, really far south. And so we started getting reports in newspapers in Nashville. So by September, they're talking about it. And by the early September 1859, we can see the lights in Nashville. And they... Uh, one person even, one newspaper even said that uh, somebody thought the city was on fire. Uh, a riverboat captain had reported that whereas the night before it was just black as ink uh, on the river, they could easily see the bank and the water and, and as they came in because of the, uh, because of the lights. Um, but then they started getting more reports from the north uh, where it was more visible uh, involving telegraphs and telegraph operation. And uh, one of the early reports said that it had interfered with telegraph operation. Like they tried to do a 400-word Associated Press story. Okay, we've been talking about the news and how it was transmitted. Well, 1859, they were having to do it by telegraph. So imagine being a telegraph (laughs) operator receiving a 400-word story. Well, it it cut off the story because it it was too – there was too much interference. Uh, Eventually in Nashville, they reprinted a story – from uh, Boston, and they recorded this dialogue between two operators, one in Boston, one in Portland. And he says, uh, one of them says, please cut off your battery entirely from the line for 15 minutes. The guy responds, we'll do so. It is now disconnected. The other guy responds, mine is disconnected, and we are working on the uh, Arroyo Current. How do you receive my writing? So they unhooked it from a battery. The lines were so charged that they say in this article for two hours they were able to communicate without any sort of – so one, my question for you guys is what's going on there? I, I mean, <laughs> we know the cause. It was yep. a guy named Carrington, Richard Carrington, who figured out that it was solar spot, a solar flare. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly he'd seen it through his telescope and made the connection between that and the, and the big aurora borealis. So I know we're getting hit, the Earth's getting hit with lots of particles. Mm-hmm. But So one of my questions is, what is actually going on with the wires? And two, what is something like that, if it happens again today, what are we in for? Mm. So let me say this. I'm, I'm glad it's solved because I was going to guess something completely different if you didn't solve it. It sounds like a Nikola Tesla experiment yeah. pushing electricity <laughs> through the atmosphere. Yep. Like yep. as soon as you said that, I'm thinking, I'm imagining like rays of electricity going from Colorado Springs to New York and, and energizing everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad it was just nature. 
But anyway. Yeah. But I don't so know. I think 18, the nature is scarier in You this said case. 1859, right? Mm-hmm. I believe that. Okay. So that was like a big solar flare. And I, and I remember, I believe from that same incident, they talked about the telegraph lines catching on fire too. Yes. Right? So some yeah. te- operators were apparently hurt, shocked right. by it, not killed or anything, but shocked by it. So the thing with, with incidents like this. So if listeners, I think we've talked about this before with, with the solar cycle. Um, the sun is, has a cycle, at least from what we've observed over the short period of time that we've existed under the sun. Um, it goes in periods of, um, Lots and lots of activity, lots of solar flares, lots of sunspots to very small amounts of activity. We're actually in the bottom of the solar cycle right now, believe it or not, even though in Tennessee it's like 100-something degrees outside today. Um, But we are in the bottom of the solar cycle. Um, And uh, the solar cycle does lots of things, um, one of which it actually affects radio communications. So if you're a ham radio operator, you know being in a low solar cycle – the bands, the the radio frequencies that we actually transmit and listen on, they're a lot less usable because there's not as much energy in the atmosphere for the signals to propagate across. That's a very low-level description. But another thing that happens when we're at the top of the solar cycle is you have a higher chance for solar flares, higher chance for sunspots. Now, a solar flare, you've seen those coronal mass ejections on the sun, right? Those things are exploding out of the sun, big like balls of arcs fire. Arcs of fire. Uh-huh. Over there. Well, when, when you see those arcs of fire, you're actually seeing the sun's magnetic field lines. And those charged particles being shot out of the sun are following the magnetic field lines of the sun. Um, that's the coronal mass ejection when you see that. So when you see those big arcs, imagine with a solar flare or a, or a really big sunspot throwing some of that electromagnetic energy, uh, radiation, not radiation, uh, yeah, yeah, radiation, um, radio energy, charged particles towards the Earth, right, yeah. Um, Well, the Earth, we don't die because because the Earth has a big shield around us, the Earth's magnetic field, right? Well, if there's a lot of those charged particles, it can start to overwhelm the Earth's magnetic field, and that's, you know, with the aurora borealis at the north, North and South Pole, you see those effects in the atmosphere because that's charged particles entering the atmosphere and ionizing some of the air in the upper atmosphere. When you have a huge solar flare like that, the aurora borealis, I can't talk, can be seen at lower and lower, um, lower, right? Lower longitudes. Um, yeah, lower, lower latitudes. latitudes. Yeah, lower yeah. latitudes. Um, and that's why they're able to see it in Tennessee, which is extremely, it must have been a really big solar flare. But the other consequence of that is you have um, charged particles and what probably was affecting the telegraph lines more likely, magnetic fields and radio frequencies uh, that are being shot out of the sun. Um, now, the reason this affected telegraph lines most um, severely, I guess it was the most noticed. It's a big antenna. Yeah, it's a big antenna. So telegraph, telegraph lines are super, super long. They stretch for long periods and they're connected, right? So... Normally, for small things like, you know, a TV antenna, radio antenna, typical broadcast radio station, this really would not affect it um, because the frequencies that the sun is sending out are extremely low, like, like you know, in the, in, in the hertz range in some cases. Um, and what determines if an antenna can hear a, um, a radio frequency is how long it is. It's actually a physical representation of how long this wavelength is. So you, what you probably had was a, some of these telegraph lines were resonant on some of these, these frequencies that the sun was outputting, whether that's in the form of charged particles or, of, or radio uh, frequencies, radio radiation. 
And that was probably causing those lines to become energized because, you know, that's what, you know, radio is. It's you're taking power and sending it out onto an antenna and then you're receiving it and that creates power in that circuit. And that's how you listen to radio. So that's exactly what was going on. Um, In some of the cases um, with those lines catching on fire, you had so much energy on those lines that it was actually getting heating up the lines themselves. Now, it's just like if you had enough radio energy on your car antenna, it would heat up and melt. But we just don't have that much radio energy around us all the time. But when the sun shoots it at you and you have a resonant thing that long, it's kind of like a – you ever seen an induction heater on a stove? That's a good example of how that would work. It's because, you know, you have something shooting out RF that's resonant to whatever you're trying to cook or resonant to the uh, pot. And that's why the pot heats up. Same thing with those telegraph wires. So, I'm sorry. So, there was like a big wire net over the country that caught a lot of of the uh, energy? Well, when you connect telegraph lines, you're literally going through... You know, if, if let's say we had to get a telegraph from New York down to Florida, um, and I may be wrong about how this works, but that's how I'm assuming they did it. Um, you have a, a several central telegraph lines that run down and connect major population centers. Mm-hmm. In those major population centers, you have what essentially is like a phone patch board. This is before phones. So they would radio to an operator, say, I need to be connected to this place. They would then make an electrical connection between their center and the next one. And it would continually link all the way down. That's why that antenna length changes all the time. So some of those, that's why Nashville telegraph lines did not catch on fire or automatically work without power. Um, But some of these ones up north did because um, not only was there higher energy up there, but they probably had made a perfect connection somewhere that was the right length to receive this radio frequency. And that's where you got all that energy from. So some it in it resulted in being able to power the telegraph equipment off of the lines themselves, and in some cases it resulted in the lines melting completely and damaging the telegraph equipment because there's such a high voltage on the line. For our listeners who understood that, <laughs> thank you for hanging in there. Oh, and for yeah. those of you who are googly eyed and need some libations, hang on because we'll <laughs> simplify that. The oh. long wires caused the issue, right? Well, the specific length of the wires, that is. Exactly. So is there, is there any threat today from something like that? You know, I've I'm pondered say, that a lot. Look, think about what type of wire we have that spans miles and miles and miles and touches itself over and over, electric cables. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. I mean, fiber optic cable isn't susceptible, but there's cable television that, you know, it's grounded a lot better, I think, probably than telegraph wires, but, you know, the electrical system. But there are a lot of grounding points along the way of the electrical system. But that was a huge event that yeah. caused that. And that's a major difference, I think, is grounding with telegraph is, lines, they were not grounded. You not know, they well. were not well. They were grounded every few hundred miles perhaps. Yeah. And that's the thing. There's yeah. not a lot of stops along the way. I mean, they, you know, put so, one in in New York and sent the other in on a yep. horse to Atlanta. And When we're talking about grounding here, we're talking about how in your house, for example, you've got, you know, three, three prongs on your plug, right? The la- the big one on the, on the bottom is ground. That eventually leads to a stake somewhere that's in the earth. And usually it's not very far from your house because, you know, you want to keep everything grounded so that if, something like a lightning strike happens, it, that lightning has a quick path to ground and it does not go through all your important electronics. Telegraphs, we didn't really think about that as much. You know, we just wanted to get the wire as long as we possibly could. So the, like, like Chris said, the modern day electrical system 
is is more resistant to that. However, there is a lot more of it. Um, I don't know how often the grounds are on some of those high lines, but I I guarantee you they're similar linked to those telegraph lines. A lot of times people, when it comes to solar flares, they think about the small electronics. You know, I, I see a lot of people on YouTube and, and, and all that. They talk about, you know, have a solar flare box if you're worried, if you're a prepper for solar flares or something. Have a, a Faraday cage that's grounded that has some electronics in it so when it happens, you know, you can, you, you have some electronics to use. I really don't know if I, I don't think that the, because of the traces in your phone and in your MacBook and everything, because those traces are so short relatively, I personally don't think that there's going to be a lot of damage done to small electronics. Now, it's possible that the magnetic fields generated, the disturbance in the earth magnetic field, could create a current in some of those wires and cause damage to the to those phones, but it's, I don't know, it, it'd be really difficult to say. I don't think that those radio frequencies and the energized particles will cause damage like they did with the... Uh, um, with the telegraph lines. Yeah, it's hard to say. It is really hard to say. But I'm fascinated by that type work. And that's why I mentioned Nikola Tesla. My grandfather gave me a huge love for Tesla. And he, he's from Colorado Springs, my grandfather. And, uh, and, and Tesla had a lab there. And mm-hmm. there was actually, my grandfather was on the board of the Tesla Museum in the Springs before they closed it. And um, interestingly enough, like when they shut down the museum, all the, all the, uh, they had a lot of his experiments and stuff on display went missing like when they they took mm. a lot of the stuff off display really um, yeah it, it went missing but when i was back visiting um there is a there is a tesla well it's i guess it's like the history of american radio museum and they had some like tesla displays in there mm-hmm. or whatnot it was really fascinating but um it's funny how we learn about radio through like big events like that you know yeah. we put that together well that was probably a prompter to someone you know saying why do I have power? I'm not connected to a battery. Yeah. What's going on? What's creating this power? It's not constantly being struck by lightning. I mean, we've got to think about it. How do they think back then? You know, it's they have power. They know where it comes from. It's now just coming from the air. So I guarantee you someone was like, well, we need to figure out why. <laughs> um, that's why I said. Maybe, that, maybe that's where Tesla got his idea for yeah. wireless le- power electricity. It's possible. I mean, that. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. I absolutely. can do this, guys. Yeah. I can recreate this. That's such a fascinating story. And, yeah. lo- you know, we're in the bottom of solar cycle, so there's not really is extremely low, almost impossible chance that we have a solar flare right now. Right. Um, in about ten years is when we're probably going to see some solar flare. But activity. but but there would, as far as you can tell, there would never be a solar flare warning. Like they see it and they say, "Hey guys, get prepared, something's coming." There's that actually was an event this bad. In other words, satellites are going to fall out of the sky, and I mean, you know, it's, it's there's really- actually a. Um, there's actually several scientific um, monitoring indexes, I guess you could say. And they, like that's another thing HAMS use. They have like a, a solar flare index and all these other things. Essentially, the probability that we will have a solar flare. They've been at zero for like, you know, five, six years. Um, but they will slowly begin to go up, and so you have a probability of it happening. Now, they can't just say, hey, um, the National Weather Service has a solar flare warning for tomorrow. You know, no, it, it is going to happen abruptly if it if and when it does. Um, but at least we will know, hey, the probability is higher uh, for it to happen. So, right. And that's my low-level understanding of it. It's like a, a warning com- or a watch compared to a warning. It's like a, <laughs> yeah, it's like a tornado chance. You know, yeah, it's right. like, you know, they say tornado watch because there's a higher probability of a tornado in this area. A warning because a storm looks like it could produce a tornado. So, uh, yeah, solar flare warning might happen when we have a solar f- 
flux index of like 90 something percent. Well, I figured someone would see it. In other words, it wouldn't just be probabilities. I guarantee you people will be looking at. Um, yeah, so I mean, stuff. I think it's but being the, monitored. But the yeah. problem is, is radio frequencies, uh, energized particles, those all travel at the same speed as light does. So as soon as we see it, we're already under the under the gun. Okay. So um, the, there's probably some preliminary, you know, signs that scientists have identified, but you know. Yeah, that's the cool thing is well, everything we're seeing is what we're experiencing right now as far as the radio frequency coming off the sun because they all travel the same speed. Well, I didn't mean to take us into the weeds with that. but uh, <laughs> That's what this no, show is about. I, I, you know, I, I, did, I was doing this paper years ago and I read that and I was like, wow, what if that happens again? What does it mean? So yeah. thanks for answering It'd be my interesting question. to see. I mean, hey, that's what yeah. we do. We tie, we tie old school with new school together yeah. here. I really wonder what modern technology would uh, develop if that actually happened, you know, you know what? what would we do to prevent it? Let's from do an experiment. Yeah. Let's build a Tesla coil and just start beaming it at things into the atmosphere. You can watch that on YouTube. There's people that um, that build Tesla coils and um, they like take fluorescent lights and stand across the room and the lights light up yeah. and it's it's really really interesting. I had a friend that built a Tesla coil in my backyard once. Really? Yeah, it was wow. neat actually. It was a uh, the power supply came out of one of the neon sign things. And, yeah, like, neon it was sign doing transformer. Zip, yeah, zap, yeah. zap, uh-huh. and it was it was really cool. I thought he was going to die, but <laughs> anyway. really really high voltage, extremely low amperage. So. Yeah, that's what's really fascinating is like is how if you're into electricity, like you know, high voltage and low wattage can kill you, and and high wattage and low voltage can kill you, mm-hmm. and vice yeah. versa. But electricity is strange. It's strange and it needs to be respected. That's for sure. You know, absolutely, it can, it can really hurt you. So that's why um, I've always heard. I know we're getting low on time, but you know, in the UK, they don't have as many uh, you know problems with people getting shocked, but they actually have a higher voltage electricity. Than yeah, they're they two twenty, aren't they? They're they're actually yeah, they're two twenty. So at least in in the UK, but um, here we use one hundred and twenty volts. And uh, I, I I can't quote any statistics on this, but I'm pretty sure that we have more deaths as far as electrocutions from our wall power than the UK does. Now they have implemented more safety stuff into their plugs, but I've I've heard anecdotally that 220 is enough juice to kick you off of the circuit that you're holding. So you right. you give it get it and it throws you a little bit. So you can't. But 120 is the perfect voltage to where you lose. Your muscle control, so you can't let go mentally, but it's not enough to throw you off of it. So if you have a grip on something in 120, you're not letting go, and it's not throwing you. So that's why, you know, you it's not going to kill you instantaneously. But if you sit there and get shocked by it, it will eventually, you know, paralyze your your abdomen muscles and kill you. Right. So, and that um, that has something to do with alternating current and direct current too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, oh yeah. And that that's tied to uh, yeah. you know an interesting historical story which you guys may know. With yeah, the, with the, that's uh, a good one. <laughs> I know what you're about to do. Uh, the the exposition in Chicago, uh-huh. uh huh, 1892, I believe it was. I don't think it was three. I think it may have been 1893. But they had a, a world exposition there, and um, his name is escaping me. Who came up it's, with um, alternating current? But it was uh, Tesla, right? I think it was Tesla. Yeah. Tesla and Vidal. Yeah, it's yeah. Tesla. Yeah. yeah. It's Tesla well, it versus Edison, Edison is what you're talking yeah. about. I mean, yeah. As, yeah, Edison, he actually, he Edison was trying to do DC. Yes. And they realized it was too much infrastructure required. Yep. Because okay. you have to have more substations yeah. for it to work. But it was also, alternating current was also dangerous. So Edison electrocuted an elephant and filmed it. And um, yeah. 
to to publicize the <laughs> yep. danger yep. of yep. of uh, to publicize the danger of of uh, alternating current. But Tesla won, and they used it. And he, what he won was uh, in this particular case was uh, the propose his proposal to use it at this fair. So that city, uh, you know, became known as the White City. This exposition. Um, in Chicago was, uh, you know, be- you know, beautifully done, mostly white buildings all lit up at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that, that single event, uh, that fair, so many things came out of that, like perhaps blue ribbon beer got the blue ribbon at that, at that fair. I kind of miss like the whole world fair thing. I've heard stories about all the amazing technologies that were revealed at world fairs and yeah. it's just not something we do anymore. No, no, well, we yeah, we have the consumer electronics show. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. It. That's, that's it. what everyone attends, right? Yeah. CEC. It's uh, the World Fair of Or CES, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah um, it's, things have changed. We did have a World's Fair in Knoxville in 82, um, but it was nothing like the ones 90 years earlier. No, nah, I can't imagine. Maybe that's our new podcast logo, like powered by Tesla, fueled by PBR. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening there to Still you Love You, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. There you go. And then... And, uh, Oh gosh, I forgot the joke from earlier about the skunk, skunk tube, and the skunk tube, <laughs> oh, right. the skunk tubes. Like, if any of our listeners have a skunk problem, I am not a professional, but email me and I. But will, he has a skunk tube. I will certainly let you borrow my skunk tube. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, listen, Alan, thank you very much again for your time. It's always thank cool you. to have you here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yes, and we we hope you're a regular. I can't wait till the uh, Halloween episode now that we talked about it. Yes, I, we're I like gonna have idea. some. I've got some stories saved up because yeah. I've collected over the years that are. Really, really bizarre. I don't think we actually talked about it on the podcast itself, but before when we were running around trying to hunt down that um, noise, uh, we mentioned maybe having a special, like a Halloween special. Um, so I believe Alan will be there for that. Yes, if you'll have me back, <laughs> I'll, I'll have some stories. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. So. Well, thanks for listening. I still love you, bro. My name is Jess. And I'm Chris. You can uh, email us, chris at still love you, bro. Or Jess, J-E-S-S-E at still love ya bro with a y a yep. dot com check out our website still love com. also check out the nashville retrospect it's nashville retrospect.com uh follow their facebook uh like us all on social media yeah, we got it too uh, facebook instagram all the all the things um and we're also on every podcast platform apple podcast google podcast Spotify, wherever you choose to get your podcast. And uh, you can leave a review for us uh, on, I think, Apple Podcasts. They don't yeah. you do that, right? Only one negative review from skunknet.com. <laughs> Thanks I, for they listening. They don't like our tube references. They do not. Have, right. a good, have a good week, guys. Peace.